It's one thing to call yourself a Christian, to say you know God, but the real question is, is does God know you? After all, at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Well, today, here on Graceful Truth, we'll begin a new series called Five Marks of a True Believer. We'll begin with our introduction. Join us. Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse is next. So when we say we're a Christian, just exactly what are we proclaiming? What is it we're ascribing to? Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Our talk today will take us to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be focusing on the first three verses today as we begin our series simply entitled Five Marks of a True Believer. Over the course of our next couple, three programs, we'll see these five marks in detail. We would invite you to join us. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We're in uh, Philippians chapter 3. As we look over at uh, Philippians chapter 3, I just want to read for us once again just the first three verses so we kind of refresh where we're at. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, or the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. You have on your outline there five uh, marks or qualities of a true Christian or a true believer. They're kind of summed up in the last verse there, where verse 3 it says, uh, For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit. That's number uh, 3. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And so there's kind of three things wrapped up there. If you wanted a description of a Christian, what is a Christian? You could go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and say, here's what a Christian is. You can talk about that a lot because a lot of people today have a lot of different um, definitions, you might say, for what a Christian is. Some say, well, they're a child of God. Others say, well, they're a disciple of Christ. You could say they're a follower of Christ. It's the one who loves God. You can go on and on. But uh, I don't think you could say it any other way so succinctly as Paul does in 3.3 of Philippians. It's a kind of a neat definition. But before we get on to that, that third verse there, I just want to review just a, a little bit. You remember that uh, Paul is writing to the, the, the Philippian church here, and it's kind of a uh, theme that he's repeated several times that it was to the nation of Israel and to the Jewish people. But as we begin to discuss this, it's always been a ploy of the enemy, of Satan, to infiltrate the true church of God with that which is false. That's just the way he works. To sow the tares, the Bible says, among the wheat. It's always been the ploy of Satan to allow perverse men to rise up within the congregation, and uh, all of a sudden that congregation is going astray. It's always been the game plan of Satan to allow and really even energize uh, workers to attack the flock of God and tear it to shreds with false doctrine, with false teaching. And it's really the call of the true believer to defend the body from that. And that's why it's so important as a church that we don't focus on the philosophy of Steve or the philosophy of John or Ken. or any. We focus on what God's Word says and what God's Word teaches. 
and we try to communicate that as effectively as we can. We don't want to get off on some, you know, well, here's, you know, five quick, you know, uh, things that help you with your, with this, with your marriage or with whatever. There's all principles within the Word of God, and as we teach through the Word of God, those principles are going to come out. Um, that's why we believe in expository teaching, teaching through a book. Trust me, you would not want to sit under my teaching if I taught topics. Because I could probably think of five subjects that you would hear over and over and over and over and over again. Because it's a passion in my heart. But when you're forced to teach through a book, all of a sudden you're faced with, you know, okay, you got to teach on circumcision. You know, that's not one of the top five things that I would want to teach on, okay, just to let you know in case you're wondering. And, and so, you know, you're forced to address it. Why? Because it's there in the text. And we're here to hopefully give you a clear understanding of what the Word of God is saying. But it's always been the, the, the ploy of Satan to infiltrate that which is true with that which is false. And so Paul is draw, drawing in the, the sand very kind of definingly um, a line here between the people of Satan, those who are disguised as angels of light and who want to infiltrate the true church, and those who are truly... Christ, those who are truly saved. And he starts there with a warning, and it's really a, a safeguard. It's a warning about the false religionists of the day. They wanted to rise up within the local churches and confuse the, the new believers. They wanted to destroy the gospel of Christ. Satan is in the business of counterfeiting things. He takes something that God has created, and he says, how can I pervert this? Everything from sex to music to uh, even the church. He looks at the church and says, how can I pervert this somehow? And that's his main goal. That's what he wants to do. And so he's not just going to barge in and do it. He's going to disguise himself as angels of light. And that's what his workers do. But it's always on his agenda as far as putting out the counterfeit. It's always a threat. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to... Mexico, Tijuana, whatever, some of you have. I'm sure probably most of you have, maybe. But when you go to a, a city like that, you have the opportunity to shop. And you go to these shops, and, you know, there's something you got to understand. If the door is closed to the shop, or if they don't have a door, all right, <laughs> if the door is closed, if they actually have a door and it's closed, that means, you know what, they don't really barter that much. In other words, when you go in and you look in the little display case and you see that Rolex, you know, diamond gold watch for 150 bucks, that's the price if the door is closed. If the door is open, then it's kind of been, you know, the, the tradition that, oh, you know, they're willing to work on, with you on the price. Or if they don't even have a door, they're definitely willing to work with you on the price. But it's, it's kind of interesting that you can go down to Tijuana and buy a Rolex watch for about 75 bucks. Really? Exactly. It's not real. It's what? It's counterfeit. You could probably, unless you have a trained eye, put some of those things right next to the real deal. And you'd probably say, wow, this looks just like a Rolex. It feels like a Rolex. But it's not a Rolex. And the same thing with, with other things you can buy down here. I remember one time I bought a, we used to take young people down there every year when I was a youth pastor. And uh, these kids would, you know, they don't understand. They, oh man, look at this watch I got, you know, 10 bucks. It's a Seiko. It's like, dude, this is not a Seiko. But it says right on the, you know, I know that. You know, and it, it took about maybe a week for this thing to kind of come unraveled and just fall apart on them. 
And then they realized, well, you know, this guy ripped me off. You tell you think? You know, why? Because it was a counterfeit. It wasn't a real thing. Remember, I was down there one, one, and I needed some t-shirts. And so I thought, oh, you know, wow. You know, they had brand names on these t-shirts, little logo. And I thought, you know, Ralph Lauren, Polo, whatever they might be. You know, I'm thinking, wow, these are good. You know, you get them home and, hey, they feel like real t-shirts, look like real t-shirts. So you wear them once and you got to put them in the washer and you pull it out and they wouldn't even fit on a little dog, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just gone, you know, it's like, what happened to this shirt? And it, it's, it's so important to realize that, you know what, there are counterfeits out there, even spiritually. And I think that we need to be aware of that, that just because someone is on TV and has a big church and a, a, a huge following, that doesn't mean anything, especially nowadays. It really doesn't. It's important that we're, we're not fooled by what that which is counterfeit. And I think that here what Paul is saying is don't be fooled by those who call themselves Christians. Don't be fooled by that. Because you know what? You can go down the street and, and a lot of people, if you ask them, are you a, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. My question always, where do you fellowship at? And when they say, what do you mean? <laughs> that kind of raises a big red flag. Well, where do you go to church? Oh, I'm this, I'm Methodist, or I'm Catholic, or I'm Lutheran. I said, that's not what I asked you. You know, where do you, where do you go to church at? Oh, well, we used to go over, you know, wherever they named some church. So what you're saying is you don't go. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, Easter and Christmas and things like that. And so you begin to realize all of a sudden, well, wait a minute. They think they're a Christian. They think that somehow that, you know, they understand the truth when really they're, they're, they're lost as a duck and they don't even realize it. And that's why it should be a concern for us because it was a concern for the, for the writers of the Bible. They always brought this up. Who's the true believer? And they set down a criteria. But here, what Paul is saying is, you know what? I need to warn you about some things and it's, it's okay for me to do this because it's, you got these people out there, I'm going to call them dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. And we're going to look at that today, what that means. What do those words mean? Are those just words he uses? No, they're, they're very strong statements that the Apostle Paul used. There was a, a book written several years ago, it was actually reprinted, but in this little book, Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character, it says this in their, their purpose of writing this book. It says, it is our prayer that God may use this book in the following ways. One, to confirm the faith of such as are the true children of God, but who lack assurance based on biblical principles. Secondly, to strip away the false hopes of such as are diluted and, and whose delusion has been confirmed by their erroneous teaching on the subject of assurance, which is so prevalent in our day. Three, to clarify these issues to those who stand in that awesome place of being expositors and teachers of God's holy word so that they may find fuel for the fires of their own hearts and their public ministries of the scriptures. And really that's what we want to do here. We want to kind of do those, carry out those three things. For those who are truly born again, we want to make sure that you're assured in your faith. But you know what? Hopefully it's going to explode and maybe strip away some of the delusion, some of the, the counterfeit faith that may be there and hopefully equip all of us to be able to better see which is counterfeit and which is not. Now Paul starts here and he says, finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord. And we talked about uh, last week a little bit about this verse, but that's the, really the first characteristic of a true believer is that relationship with the Lord that causes joy in our hearts. And it's a transition like we said, and he lays down this very basic, simple principle that our rejoicing is connected to a relationship. 
He says, rejoice what? In the Lord. He doesn't just say rejoice. He doesn't just say like the, the song says, be happy. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. And it's a familiar theme throughout the whole book in chapter 1, verse 4, in chapter 2, verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, 28, 29. You find it here again in chapter 3 and also in chapter 4, verses 4 and 10. And so he's reminding them about joy. That's why this book is called the book of joy. But this is a, the, the first time here he adds that little phrase, in the Lord. Because he wants them to understand their joy outside of the Lord. We talked about last week how a lot of people think they have joy when really they just have happiness. And their happiness is just a fleeting emotion. It depends on what happens around them. But this kind of joy is associated with a relationship. Think of it this way. It's kind of like the joy that a new uh, mother has over her newborn baby. You stop and you think about this baby. The baby provides nothing. It comes out of the wound and it's, it's, it can't do anything. Zero. There's no stimulating events in the, in the baby's life. It provides no gifts when it comes out. Hey, look what I brought you, Mom. Nothing like that. Doesn't, it's not ready to make a contribution, charitable contribution. There's no particularly beneficial service of this baby at all. And yet, when you stop and you think about it, the relationship between that mother and that baby, there is an exhilaration of joy there. It's that same kind of emotion, only in much greater and deeper proportion, is that of falling in love. When you fall in love, hopefully, there's some joy involved. If there's not, we need to talk. Okay, if you're saying you're in love and there's no joy in your relationship, there's a problem. But when you fall in love, you find that special someone and you fall in love, all of a sudden, wow, there's a joy with, connected to that relationship. You don't have a joy independent of that relationship concerning that person. It's the same thing with the Lord. When Paul says to rejoice in the Lord, he's telling us, you know what, it's because of the Lord that you have the joy, you have the ability to rejoice. And it's not some emotional thing that we talk about on a human level. It's really produced by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, on a supernatural level. It's a supernatural emotion, you might say. You say, well, what does it do? How does it make us feel? What, is, what does this joy produce in our lives? Well, it produces a deep, I would say, trust and confidence in the future. Because when you have a relationship with the Lord, you begin to understand that, you know what, your life is in God's hands. It's not in your own hands. Your life is in Christ's control. We sang that hymn a couple weeks ago, it is well with my soul. No matter what goes on around us, the believers should be able to say, you know what, it is well with my soul, in spite of the circumstances. That's the true believer. That's the believer that has this supernatural joy imparted to them. That doesn't mean sometimes you get, don't get depressed, sometimes you get mixed up emotionally, but overwhelmingly, deep down inside, you should still be able to lay your head on the pillow at night and get a good night's rest because you know that God is in control. You're not. It's a kind of joy that brings a silent sleep, a deep sleep, a, a quietness of life because it trusts in, in our Creator, in our Lord, and it really dispels any form of fear because we're trusting in God. There's a hymn that we sing once in a while, In my heart there rings a melody. It's that kind of joy, that kind of joy that puts that melody in your heart. No matter what kind of bumps you run over, no matter what walls you run into, there's still a, a deep-seated trust and faith in God that, you know what, God, my life is in your hands and you're going to work these things out. See, it's very different from happiness. Happiness depends on what goes on around you, good health, flourish financially socially. But see, joy persists in weakness and pain and illness and death. It's different than being involved in a 
if you're at a, a party and all the music's going and everybody's talking, you're having a good time, that's happiness. What joy is is when everybody goes home and you turn out the lights and there's no music, there's not even another soul in the room, and you still have that joy, that peace in your heart. It's because we trust in God. We rejoice in the Lord, as Paul says. A lot of people don't get that. A lot of people, their, their joy, their happiness is based on everything that goes on around them. F.B. Meyer wrote this, The joy of the Lord arises from leaving all of our burdens at his feet, from believing that he has forgiven the past as absolutely as the tide obliterates the children's writing in the sand, that nothing can come which he does not appoint or permit that he is doing all things as wisely and kindly as possible, that in him we have been lifted out of the realm of sin, sorrow, and death, and into the realm of divine light and love, that we have already commenced the eternal life, and that before us forever there is a fellowship with him so rapturous and so exalting that the human language can only describe it as unspeakable. And so Paul says, you know what, keep on rejoicing in the Lord. That's a command. That's not an option. And it's characteristic of every, every believer. And he goes on there and he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. Now you can say, well, what's he talking about? Is he talking about something he just wrote or is he talking about something he's going to write? Well, I don't think he's talking about rejoice in the Lord. I think he's talking about something that he's just about ready to pen. So for me to write these things that I'm about ready to write to you, is not tedious for you. For you, it's safe. And that's why he says there very clearly, beware. Beware. And this is where the idea of not only does a true believer have a rejoicing heart, but the true believer has some realm of discernment when it comes to spiritual matters. He says it's, it's a safeguard. And in verse 2, he begins, beware. And this is kind of where we want to spend the majority of our time here this morning. He uses this same kind of phraseology back in chapter 1, verse 27, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard. It's kind of a similar thing as what he's saying. And back in 27, he, he's talking about conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's calling this church to live a godly life and behave as a church should behave. And back in, in verse 28 of chapter 1, he goes on, he says, In no way alarmed by your opponents. See, he's bringing up the idea back in chapter 1 about, you know what, there's, there's some people out there that want to destroy you, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Verse 29, because it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, he goes on to say, and you will further experience the very same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. Where was he when he wrote this? He was in prison, right? That's what he was relating to the people. And so Paul's saying to them, hey, look, you know what? You need to stay true, walk worthy, stay together in one mind, striving together in one faith of the gospel. Don't care about the opposition that's out there. Don't let them in, infiltrate your church. Don't let them influence you in a wrongful way. That little phrase, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, it means to cause fear or reluctance. And he's saying, you know what? I'm not reluctant. I'm not afraid to do this. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm excited to do this. Why? In verse 2 there, he says, because it's it's for your protection. In verse the end of verse 1, it's your protection is for your safety. It's for a safeguard for you. That original word really means to cause to fall or to overthrow. And what he does is he puts a little article in front of it, which means I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to trip. I don't want you to be overthrown in your faith. 
this is going to be a protection for you because I'm going to warn you about some things that you need to hear. See, Paul is no dumb dog, you might say, as Isaiah 56.10 says. He also is no irresponsible watchman on the wall, as we described in Ezekiel. But Paul is faithful, and he's faithful to warn these people about some things that they needed to have their attention brought to. In Acts chapter 20, he says, I have not ceased to warn you at Ephesus night and day with tears for the space of three years. I warned you about perverse men rising up from within, and I've warned you about grievous wolves from without. See, warning people about things is part of ministry. That's part of our call as believers. And so he says, hey, you know what? I have no trouble doing this. This is part of my calling. Now, who's he going to warn us about? Who's he talking about? He uses that word in the original there three times. Beware. And all three times it's in the imperative. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. If you take the mutilation at the end of verse 2, which is translated in the uh, New American Standard, false circumcision, and then you compare it with verse 3, the true circumcision, we know who he's talking about. He's talking about those who basically took circumcision, the symbol of circumcision, and they held on to that so tightly that they forgot about the spiritual implications of circumcision. So they were saying, if you just do this one thing, have yourself circumcised, well, then that's fine. Then you'll, have, you'll be pleasing to God. And we found out that that's not necessarily true. See, because the Apostle Paul comes into the Gentile world and he preaches that, you know what, salvation is by grace plus nothing. No works at all. That's how we're saved. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you must do. You're saved by grace, period. That's the message of the gospel of Christ. God's marvelous grace. In an act of faith, you simply receive the gift of grace given to us. The work has all been done for us. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., we offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. 
And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.